The only purpose of the Talking Space podcast is to educate and to inform. The views expressed in this program are the opinions, experiences, and conclusions of the guests. They do not represent the official policy or position of the Space Troop Society as a whole, NASA, any other space agency, company, contractor, or affiliate. We choose to go to the moon. Good day to you all, and welcome on board the Good Ship Talking Space. This is Talking Space number 315 for April 21st, 2011, and I am here with uh, my good friend Mark Ratterman tonight. How are you doing there, sir? we got some good stuff to talk about, but that's not unusual. But this is going to kind of be out of this world from what we're usually covering. Indeed, indeed. Uh, tonight we're going to be doing a little something, just something a little different. Um, we usually go ahead and do a weekly magazine show uh, talking about the headlines and so on. Tonight we're going to focus on an interesting payload that uh, uh, Shuttle Endeavor is going to be carrying on her last mission, the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer 2. And uh, this is a, uh, an extraordinarily exciting device and uh, hopes, hopes uh, spring eternal on as far as what it's going to find and uh, uh, tap, you know, sort of tap the secrets of the universe, as it were. And uh, so that's what we're going to be talking about here, here tonight. Um, Mark Ratterman has sort of been our de facto uh, KSC bureau chief here. And he's been sort of following the mission pretty pretty closely, so uh, I'm, I'm honored to to have him here today and to talk about this. There was a little bit of a, a nice little little uh, meeting uh, back on March 24th uh, with uh, Trent Martin, who is the uh, AMS project manager out of the Johnson Space Flight Center, and uh, Dr. Samuel Ting, uh, Nobel laureate from uh, MIT who is the primary investigator. Um, Trent Martin answered that question uh, from uh, from the press that were gathered there, exactly what is AMS. So I'm going to go ahead and let uh, Trent go ahead and describe, describe in his own words what AMS really is. Uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Trent Martin. I am the AMS uh, project manager here at the Johnson Space Center. Uh, AMS is a large high-energy physics experiment uh, designed to look for antimatter, dark matter, and to understand cosmic ray propagation uh, from its perch on top of the International Space Station. Uh, it is a U.S. Department of Energy-sponsored payload uh, that is flown on, on shuttle under a memorandum of understanding between the Department of Energy and uh, NASA. The responsibilities of my office here at, at NASA Johnson Space Center uh, are to provide payload integration activities. Uh, NASA is responsible for providing the space shuttle ride to the International Space Station and operations once we're on the International Space Station. Uh, we've been providing continuous support uh, to the AMS collaboration since 1994 when the collaboration began. Uh, we provide numerous pieces of uh, ground support equipment uh, and, and flight support equipment. Essentially, we take the experiment components uh, that are provided by the collaboration, we integrate them into NASA-built uh, hardware that, that attaches them to the space station and also to the space shuttle. 
Uh, we provide uh, the, the single point of contact between the collaboration and the rest of NASA, whether that be the, the station program, the shuttle program, or the various centers, Kennedy, uh, Johnson, Goddard, et cetera. Uh, we have provided uh, specialized test fixtures, some specialized transportations from all places around the world. Um, we, we ensure that the payload is safe for launch on the space shuttle and safe for operations on the International Space Station. And we provide a mentoring function for uh, the physicists who, uh, in the beginning, weren't very good at building spaceflight hardware, but <laughs> after uh, this long are actually fairly good at it. It weighs uh, 15,251 pounds. Uh, it takes up one quarter of the payload bay in Shuttle Endeavor uh, by, by volume, about one half by mass. It will sit on the S3 upper inboard payload attached site uh, on Space Station, and it utilizes uh, the detector components. We have eight uh, detector components and over 600 onboard computers to analyze the data. So the big question is, how does all this, how does all this work? And again, uh, Trent Martin went ahead and answered that, that question for us, so uh, we'll go ahead and run that clip right now. Essentially what we're trying to do is uh, de detect the charge of a particle. We, we, we essentially take a large MRI-shaped or donut-shaped magnet, um, as similar to what you would find in a, in a hospital for MRI, uh, turn it upright. We put detectors down through the center of the, of the magnet system that can tell the a particular particle's uh, mass, energy, velocity, and with coupling it with the magnetic field, we can tell the charge of the particle. So if it's positively charged, it bends one direction in the magnetic field. If it's negatively charged, it bends the other direction in the magnetic field. So indeed, it's a rather com it's a rather complex complex instrument, but uh, it all really is is a big magnet, right, Mark? Yeah, at one of the briefings, and to be honest, I've lost track of what I've heard on which occasion because I first met Dr. Ting back in August when AMS arrived from Geneva. I also heard him speak in March on the, uh, the AMS briefing, March 10th, and I've also heard the audio from the uh, Johnson Space Center where he did a briefing out there. But uh, one of the descriptions he gave of it, he said that AMS is a trillion electron volt precision multi-purpose particle physics spectrometer in space. And I just love all of those words that I understand individually, just like every other English sentence. But when you put them into a sentence, it, it boggles the mind. Trillion electron volt precision. Okay, I got that. Multi-purpose. This really is looking at the uh, spectrum of cosmic rays. And... Uh, it's uh i'm i'm looking forward to uh when we'll we'll get some layman's explanations of this uh better than i can do you got to know a whole lot more to teach something than you do to understand it so i'm looking forward to to picking up more on it yeah even even dr ting said during that uh uh, same press conference is that you know in physics it always seems rather complicated, but in the basic the basic idea is always extraordinarily simple. And uh, Dr. Ting has a has a way of making that uh, making the complex sound uh, sounding extraordinarily simple. Uh, so how did this whole project start? And and it was it, it's kind of funny in how it all all really did start. Um, it was really as a result of the cancellation of the superconducting super collider back in 1993. 
Um, this was going to be a huge particle accelerator. The the thing had a circumference of about 54 miles, and it would have been probably the most powerful particle accelerator on Earth. It actually would have, would have eclipsed the uh, Large Hadron Collider over at CERN today. Um, unfortunately, ironically, uh, according to a few articles I was reading, um, the I the the International Space Station kind of sort of contributed to to this particular device's uh, uh, demise here. Uh, Jim Wright, who was then the Speaker of the House, argued for the project. Of course, Jim Wright at the time was from Texas and saw the jobs that this thing could possibly create. But um, the project was being, you know, well, sadly to say, it was mismanaged, and uh, uh, it looked like it was going to be about 4.4 billion dollars uh, initially. But uh, the whole project kind of sort of got out of hand and went to about $20 billion. It was the same estimate that uh, the U.S. contribution to the International Space Station was supposed to be. So a decision was made, well, we can't afford the, both our participation in the ISS and this particular – and the super and the super collider. So uh, the super collider was unfortunately killed, even though at the time President Clinton kind of lobbied for the project, saying if we went ahead and abandoned something like this – it would signal that the United States was trying to get out of, you know, the, its leadership in basic research. Now, out of the ashes of all this uh, comes in, in Dr. comes in Dr. Samuel Ting from of MIT. I don't know if he was initially attached to the super collider, but I, uh, that's one thing we'll have to probably go ahead and dig up. But um, he had proposed this particular experiment, the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer which is, again, a space-borne cosmic ray detector. Um, he approached the Department of Energy with it, and uh, they looked at it and said, yeah, this sounds pretty good. So they underwrote it, and um, and uh, Dr. Ting became the principal investigator. Mark, you've got a couple of bios with reference to Dr. Ting. Can you go ahead and share that for us? Yeah, Dr. Ting is a success story, and it appears that that's been uh – Something that's driven his whole life is his desire to uh, to learn and to be out in the forefront with uh, research. But he was born in Michigan, raised in China during World War II. Uh, actually, his education was delayed until I believe he was 12 years old. His his parents, however, were uh, in the university system in China, and so he was homeschooled. And at one point, he actually did get. His education started in China. He was invited to attend the University of Michigan in 1956. And in three years, he graduated and had a, uh, a double degree, one in physics and one in mathematics. And three years later, he had his Ph.D. completed at the University of Michigan. And uh, in, that was in 1950, 1962, rather. And in 1976, he won a Nobel Prize. So in 14 years after receiving his doctorate, he had a uh, Nobel Prize. So he's an extraordinary man. And yet at uh, one of the events, I spoke to one of the uh, NASA folks, uh, Joe Delay, the payload mission manager for STS-134 at KSC. And he made the description of Professor Ting. He said, uh, He's a down-to-earth guy. He's a nice guy. He's a funny guy. He's so smart, but he doesn't let it show. He's good to work with and work for. He's look, I'm looking forward to keeping in touch with these guys and see what they find out. 
So the uh, the NASA folks that have uh, been closely involved with the the scientists in this collaboration, the NASA people are uh, are are kind of connected in a in a pretty pretty tight way with with AMS's whole. Uh, inception and growth and changes from AMS one to AMS two, and uh, they're connected to it. They really are, and something that's gone uh, from the mid 1990s when AMS one started until today with AMS two. It's certainly been a big part of many many people's careers. Wow. I mean, you could tell, too, you were just saying, as, as far as Dr. Ting is concerned, and his usual demeanor, you can actually tell that, too. He just seems to be a really, you know, down-to-earth kind of guy, and just, that's the way he strikes me, at least during the, the press conferences, and somebody who's you know, really trying to, to communicate what they're doing um, and what they're, and uh, hopefully get it out there so that the layman can really fully understand the magnitude of, of what they're trying to go ahead and do. So, um, again, I... I I mean, I, I I hope to I hope one day I get to meet meet the man. I mean, I mean that he's a he seems to be quite a quite an intriguing individual. So anyway, um, moving right moving right along, um, it was decided that sort of a, a test a concept uh, device be created. So uh, AMS one was built, and um, it flew on shuttle Discovery on STS ninety one, uh, which was launched on June of uh, June 2nd, I believe, of 1998. It was the final uh, mission to the Shelton, to the uh, old Mir space station. And this was essentially a bit of a proof of concept flight, right, right Mark? And, and what exactly did they, uh, did they find with AMS-1? Yeah, absolutely. It was a, uh, a proof of concept, and, and it was just for uh, Discovery trivia fans, it was the 24th flight of Discovery at that time in 1998. Um, there's, I've, I found a, uh, several documents, one that was before AMS-1 flew and then one afterwards that discussed some of the conclusions. But um, interestingly, it says AMS was, will be the first sensitive magnetic spectrometer in space. And uh, their goals were to observe charged particles outside the Earth's atmosphere, and they did. What they found is that, or what they projected was that in 10 days, that AMS back in 98 would record more than 10 times the total number of antiprotons observed to date. That was one of their goals. They said their main objectives were achieved. The AMS detector successfully operated in space. I think Professor Ting described it as being 100% successful. Um, they found that the environment that the instrument was operating in, the radiation, the temperature, uh, changes, uh, all of those things were, uh, did not affect the readings. They had a well-designed instrument. And, uh, if you think about the changes from 1998 through today in 2011, technology has changed a lot. And that kind of gives you a hint as to what AMS's, AMS2 capabilities are. Yeah, indeed. Now, um, it wasn't guaranteed that AMS-2 was, was going to fly, right, Mark? Yeah, it's true. AMS uh, had no guarantees and has been an on-again, off-again. And unfortunately, the off-again uh, started with the loss of Space Shuttle Columbia. And with with that and the investigation as to what happened with Columbia, why we lost it, 
the delay in getting return to flight, all of a sudden uh, this this one and a half billion dollar experiment that uh, flew successfully in '98 now is in jeopardy, and one of the uh, one of the scientists that's in the in the in the community said it's a pity that NASA is living up to its commitment to finish the space station, but not to its commitment to use for something scientifically interesting. And this was in February of 2008, and uh, it seriously looked like AMS was going to be supported by NASA, but would never get to space. And uh, that's where Dr. Ting and and I'm sure the Department of Energy and many other people came in, where they started trying to make things happen to get a ride. Right, and I believe finally, um, I believe it was uh, President Bush that signed into law the uh, uh, part of the budget that said, yep, AMS will fly. Um, that happened, I believe, October 15, 2008, and uh, uh, NASA went ahead in January 2009, established the fact that AMS-2 would be carried indeed on shuttle, shuttle flight STS-134. So 134 seemed to be you know, just, just designated for that mission and that mission alone uh, to make sure that AMS got up there. That's true, and, and what I read was that after Columbia, the uh, – the whole focus of the manned spaceflight program for the U.S. was going to be finishing the International Space Station, getting it supported, uh, outfitted to where it could uh, accomplish its mission. In fact, at that point, there was even no guarantee that it was going to the ISS itself would go beyond, uh, what was it, 2016, I think? Yeah, 2015, I think. Um, So they had no guarantees, and and the original plan for AMS-2 was that it would go up on the shuttle. It would it would it would take uh, two shuttle flights. So for the United States, it was not an expensive device. I mean, we're talking about a billion and a half dollars. But uh, from what I read, the U.S. basically was going to provide the support of two shuttle flights, one up, one down. And uh, AMS-2 was going to have a different magnet. It was going to be uh, cooled, uh, superconducting magnet with superfluid helium, and uh, so those things, uh, you know, would have worked nicely, except for the change in the shuttle manifest and the focus on finishing the ISS. Yeah, it just wasn't guaranteed that AMS that uh, AMS was going to fly until uh, that, you know, until you know the the whole whole thing got uh, got straightened out. Yeah, also too, if Mark, if I'm not mistaken, um, there was initially supposed to be two flights, one up, one down, um, but uh, because the fact that the, the announcement made that the shuttle program was going away. Uh, that kind of, <laughs> you know, you've got the ride up, and then you know, the, you don't have a ride back. So some modifications to AMS had to be had to be made. Also, a lot of uh, sh- shuttle flights that were on the manifest prior to 2003 had to be axed. So again, you're you're kind of left, you know, you're you're left in a lurch. You don't. So a, you've got to go ahead and kind of redesign the device to go ahead and make sure that. Uh, uh, you can carry out an extended mission, or you know, refit the device so it can carry out an extended mission. And B, make sure you got your ride up. So, and that's what they, that, that's what Dr. Ting and company had to go ahead and accomplish, mm-hmm. correct? And they did. And October fifteenth of, uh, I lost my date. What is it? Ninety-eight. 
Oh, um, 2008. I have, get, yeah, I have October 15th, 2008. Get my decades mixed up. That's when, that's when <laughs> H.R. 6063 had uh, gone through the Congress and was signed by the president. And uh, it's exciting to me to read, you know, a simple bit of text, but the public law, it's, it states additional flight to deliver the alpha magnetic spectrometer and other scientific equipment and payloads to the International Space Station. They talk about the manifest and the purpose of the mission planned under this subsection shall be to ensure the active use of the United States portion of the ISS as a national laboratory by the delivery of AMS. Trent Martin, I think, also, too, during the, the conference uh, mentioned how much this whole thing was really, really going to cost. Because I think that was that was uh, uh, brought up during the press conference. So. Uh, he gave a number of about ultimately of about two billion, um, but he he tempered his his judgment there uh, because he has to support people and so on. I'm just going to go ahead and let Trent Martin go ahead and and bring talk speak to that point. Okay, so <laughs> calculating the cost of AMS is difficult <clears throat> simply because we have all the different institutes. Many of the many of the institutes provide in kind work, or they only provide uh, you know three grad students and a professor and they don't tell us how much those cost. Um, so over the years, I've been asked multiple times to come up with the cost of AMS. $2 billion is the number right now that I would say AMS has cost since the beginning, since 1994. Um, there are annual operating costs. Um, most, most of those are, are, are borne by the, by the collaboration themselves once they move the, the payload operation control center to CERN, to Geneva, uh, as they man that uh, with uh, 12 to 15 people per shift, uh, 24 hours a day. Um, so that gives you an idea of the, the number of people that they will have to have in place uh, just for the operations. Now, obviously, they'll they'll share some of the duties of operations as well as science analysis. Um, and uh, I'll leave it to Professor Ting on the, the science science teams that will be throughout the world. Clearly, those will cost something as well. Mostly borne by each one of those institutes. So yeah, as you could see, it was uh, it was kind of you know he he was being a little bit on the um, on the safe side too because he did mention that uh, once AMS is up there, uh, you're going to have to go ahead and support you have to pay the support people. So all right, we've we've kind of talked about the we've kind of talked about the history of the whole thing. We've talked about kind of sort of how this thing works. Let's let's talk a little bit about the detectors on board uh, the international on board uh, uh, AMS. Um, there are about six all-in-all, Mark, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, now we're getting into the good uh, tech geeky stuff. Yeah. You can count me in. <laughs> the uh, the right. detector itself weighs seven and a half tons, measures uh, five meters by four meters by three meters, and that's not exact. Uh, it has six detectors, as you said. It has multiple redundancies, and some redundancies are up to fourfold because they want to make sure that if anything does fail, that it has a backup and hopefully a backup to a backup with some of the really critical systems. Um, <laughs> this device has uh, a total number of some 650 microprocessors. They're, they're, they're pulling data off of 300,000 channels within the instrument. They do some pre-processing on the AMS the data stream is about 7 gigabits per second. After it's processed in the instrument, it gets uh, 
scaled down to a six megabyte average downlink bandwidth. And uh, I found references that indicate that it's actually going to be more like two megabits per second and uh, that they've got capability of uh, having it stored on board the ISS and, uh, and you know, put through on a burst download uh, if, if they need to do that for, for bandwidth concerns. Um, but that's not even talking about the detectors. Nope. No, it, it's certainly, nope. And uh, uh, Dr. Ting went ahead and uh, listed the detectors during the, uh, the press conference there. So we'll let him go ahead and talk about those right, right now. So when you look at a particle detector, it always looks very complicated. So there are many layers. The first layer is called transition radiation detector. It measures electrons and positrons. And then they are followed by time of flight detector, measure the energy and nuclear charge. And then you have a nine layer of silicon detector, total area 6.2 square meters, measure the nuclear charge and the sign of the charge in a magnetic field. And then you have another detector called RICH, it measure the energy and charge. And then at the bottom, you have another detector called electromagnetic detector, you measure the energy of electron, positron, and gamma rays. This means most of the properties are measured repeatedly, just to make sure they are consistent with each other. When a particle goes through these different detectors, it leaves different traces, and you can quickly identify them. So you could see that they were really, really careful. Uh, they wanted to make sure that each one of these particles, as they go into the system, uh, are are properly gone ahead and, and cataloged and so on. Now, the the magnet itself, Mark, is it sort of analogous to the one that you would find, like say, in an MRI device? Or I, I know an MRI device at one point did play a part in in, in testing this thing, correct? Yeah, they used a. Uh, they did some scans of some of the fibers that are part of the detectors to verify that uh, a, uh, a wire inside of a, a tube was within place to an accuracy of a, like a 0.1 micrometer. Uh, and for some reason, I feel like I'm getting my units of measurement off, but an extremely <laughs> precise. They made, we'll put it this way, they made 10,000 of these, this one particular set of fibers, um, and they used 5,000 and some of them for the instrument. So, extremely, uh, extremely tight. The magnet itself is a, uh, magnet that came from Mongolia, I believe, in China. Wow. Uh, they made three of them. One was made where the, uh, components of it were not glued together and the reason for that was so that it could be tested to failure. Uh, the, okay. the question was if something goes wrong, this was for AMS-1 actually because the, the magnet that's flying on 2 is AMS-1 permanent magnet, 
They said if something goes wrong and the glue fails that holds these 6,000, I believe it is, magnet sections together, um, you know, what's going to happen? Because it went up and down on, on Discovery on that flight. And they found that it took three to ten times the projected loads and still didn't fail. So that was one of the magnets. The The other magnet is the one that flew in space in 1998 and is going to fly here in 2011. And the third one was one that went through the uh, the shake and bake testing. And so, okay. uh, you know, it passed those tests, but that takes it out of uh, out of the the running for for flight. So that that's interesting that the magnet that they used on AMS one is is returning to space on AMS two. Um, so. Why? Why have all the again? Why have all this redundancy? Why are we going ahead and you know, are we just trying to make sure that we sort out the particles in the proper way? One of the things that uh, that Dr. Ting is is very focused on, shall we say, is mm-hmm. that they want the detector to operate to where there is no uncertainty from the readings that they get as to to what they mean. They have ways of uh, particles that come through AMS sideways. It's a it's a tubular, let's say, magnet. And if particles come through sideways, the detectors, uh, you know, they, they find the ones that are going through, not through the barrel, but through from angles, and they're rejected. Um, okay. These six detectors is redundancy in detectors themselves to where each detector is measuring the same particle and and tracking it, its time, its charge. Uh, they have a time of flight detector that is there to to track the the amount of time it takes the particle to go from the top of the AMS through to the bottom. Um, and they're doing all these things to make sure that they get good readings and that there's no um, there's, that they're not having to guess, well, is this good or is this bad? In fact, uh, I heard a statement that uh, AMS, when it was in the space station processing facility at Kennedy Space Center, was getting, uh, when it was turned on and operating, which it was for part of its time here in Florida, uh, they were getting 400 hits per second of the detector just sitting there in the SSPF. Wow. <laughs> and they anticipate that in space at the ISS, it'll have about 25,000 hits per second. Whoa. And so that's, that's that, impressive. you know, that explains the reason as to why it's there. They, they cannot detect the primary high energy particles on the ground because they're, uh, they're, these particles hit the atmosphere and you get secondary. In fact, I've seen them referred to as shower type uh, events where the the primary particle hits something and it it sprays off into other particles and that's what's actually you're getting on the ground you're not getting the primary cosmic ray and that's what they'll have in space they'll get the uh, high energy which talking about high energy you know we talk about the LHC at CERN and uh, Mm -hmm. the energy that that they're ramping up to is 7 trillion electron volts Dr. Ting said that the AMS detector in space will be picking up 100. They'll they'll be 
they'll be there to catch the occasional 100 million trillion electron volt particle that comes by. Wow. That's intense. You can't, you can't do that. Even, you know, what you were talking about with the superconducting super collider that was proposed in the U.S., that was 40 uh, trillion electron volts. And, and 40, 40 right. trillion is still nothing compared to 100 million trillion. Thus the reason why we need AMS on orbit and uh, and not on the ground. Uh, so it, it, its its primary purpose really is to try to go ahead and take a, if I'm correct in this and forgive give me if I'm wrong, its primary purpose is to try to go ahead and take an accurate census of you know, matter and antimatter in, in the universe, correct? And try to figure out what is really there, what is the universe made up of. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, I've heard this referred to the uh, the AMS device uh, because of its exceptional characteristics. It's been dubbed the Hubble Telescope of Cosmic Rays. So wow. like Hubble has, has brought us views of, of things that, that we you know, have have never, never, never seen before. Well, that's what AMS is going to do in the cosmic ray part of the spectrum. That's incredible. Um, hey, Mark, you think we should go ahead and, and uh, let the captain of the uh, of the good ship Endeavor for this flight talk a little bit about AMS and what he hopes to to uh, to find out Let's here? Let's do. Let's do. Okay. Okay, here's a little little cut of uh, Mark Kelly talking uh, during the the, uh, uh, the TCDT uh, press event here. So I'm going to go ahead and, and let Mark Kelly talk about how how important this payload is is to him and his crew. Uh, the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer is going to be one of the premier you know science experiments of the 21st century. We hope. Um, you know, Hubble has shown. Uh, millions of people, incredible pictures of, you know, not only our galaxy, but the universe. And we can learn a lot from those images. But what AMS is going to do is going to te teach us a lot about what, uh, you know, what we're seeing in those pictures, what, what's the makeup of the cosmos. And, you know, as a crew being involved with this experiment, we're, we're pretty excited about what the results are going to be. We're talking to Dr. Ting just yesterday at the pad, um, Professor Samuel Ting, who won the Nobel Prize for Physics, who is the program manager for AMS, and he told us uh, just yesterday that within an hour of Greg and Greg attaching this to uh, Space Station, they're going to start having data. And they're going to collect data over the next 15 or 20 years. and. AMS could be teaching us uh, things about the universe that are completely unexpected. Um, so we'll see what uh, you know what it what it can tell us. But we're certainly uh, very excited about the prospects uh, for that science. So yeah, even you could tell even the crew is 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 excited to have have this as part of their their mission. So how is this thing going to be installed on on, on the ISS? Um, I went ahead. Well, again, um, Trent Martin during uh, the uh, the discussion back on uh, March 24th went ahead and uh, talked about that. So I'm going to go ahead and let Trent Martin explain how uh, AMS is going to be installed and where it's going to, going to sit on board the uh, the International Space Station. 
Okay, so once AMS is launched on the, on the Endeavour and makes its way to the International Space Station, we will utilize the space shuttle arm to pick AMS up out of the payload bay. Uh, we do an arm-to-arm -arm handoff uh, where we use the space station arm to reach over and grab the AMS using uh, grap two different sets of grapple fixtures that we have on AMS. Uh, once we do the handoff, um, we move it over into position uh, above the uh, S3 truss and we will drop it down, well, hopefully not drop it down. We'll set it down gently onto the uh, International Space Station. Uh, once in place, uh, we connect through, through the umbilical mechanism assembly and attach it electrically um, for electrical and data purposes to the space station. Once on space station, we turn on AMS uh, almost immediately. Um, we'll, we'll prepare the system for taking scientific data, and we can actually be taking data uh, as soon as the power comes on to AMS, uh, so within, within a few minutes, actually. So you can see it's, it's going to be a, lot of comp a little bit of robotics there to go ahead and, uh, and, and take AMS and, and put it down to where it's going to be. Now, um, I believe also during the March 24th event, Mark, um, Bob Perlman had a, had a very interesting question with reference to uh, if there's any kind of recourse, if just in case AMS does not work on orbit, is there anything the crew could do at that at that point to go ahead and and try to see uh, if say they're not returning data or something? Is there anything the crew can do to go ahead and and fix anything? Well, let me give you a little funny first. Uh, when I was a kid, my family was moving and had one of the big moving and storage companies with the big moving van out front of the house and. I asked the guy uh, loading the truck, might have been the driver, I said, uh, hey, mister, what happens if you get a flat tire? And he basically said, kid, don't even talk about it. Get out of here. So, so good question. <laughs> what happens if, uh, if there's a problem? Um, there's, in some respects, there's nothing they can do. And in other ways, there are some things they can do to mitigate it or to fix it. But uh, by and large, AMS is, uh, I think you, what was the term you used? Um, this is what we used to use when we, when, when, when talking about some, some of the computer uh, software we, we would, we would install. Um, we used to call it plug and pray. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, plug it in and pray it works. Um, that's, so that's essentially what AMS is. If, you know, there, is there, there's really nothing they could do to go ahead and fix that? There's things they can do with power buses. There's things they can do with uh, elements of the device that that are part of the data communications path, you know, to the ISS. Uh, but as far as the detectors, there's redundancy in the detectors. There's redundancy in some of the elements of the detectors. Uh, those 650 microprocessors I mentioned, they've got redundancy there. But uh, you know, there's there's probably single points of failure that nobody wants to think about. And that's why uh, on launch day, you know, when they get to orbit, open the payload bay doors, they're going to power on AMS, and they're going to do some health checks of the device. They're going to turn the heaters on to give it thermal stability in the payload bay, and uh, then it'll sit until they get to the ISS. It's powered down briefly, handed over to the uh, space station RMS, and it's put on its attach point, and again, powered up and turned on and to see everything's happy. So there's going to be. Uh, so is there? Did you hear if there's going to be any type of like commissioning type thing? You know, because I know 
uh, whenever like Messenger, when it arrived in Mercury over in uh, in Mercury orbit, there was a little bit of a commissioning period where where they go ahead, make sure the spacecraft is happy, make sure all the uh, pho- photography is happy and and all that. Um, the first image, for instance, was a was a test image. It was it was beautiful, but it was a test image nonetheless. But it was just an idea of of what's to come. Is there any type of commissioning period for AMS? No, virtually none. They expect to uh, when it's on board the ISS, it'll be it'll be like I said, turned on. Uh, there's probably just you know checkouts of of you know data. Uh, data paths and normal operation but uh dr tang made the statement one of the briefings that uh you know we'll have data within an hour and really it's it's nearly instant so uh there's no commissioning there's no alignment uh ams2 has been checked and checked and checked again and again um one of the things they did with AMS-2 before it came to the U.S. when it was in at CERN was they put it in the path of the particle accelerator and they put a, a, a known, you know, they put known particle events through AMS-2 to verify its response and its calibration. So all of that uh, commissioning and tune-up and such as that has been done on the ground. So uh, the, what, what I'm getting is JSC is going to check it out first. They're going to make sure it works electrically and it's talking to the various computers that it has to talk to and then just hand it off to CERN and say, okay, guys, it's all yours. Have fun. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so now we come to the big question. What is AMS hoping to find? Uh, that's a big, tall order. Uh, in fact, I'm going to go ahead um, – and and let Dr. Ting himself go ahead and talk about that that last point, what he's hoped, what we're hoping to find with uh, with AMS. You don't want me to answer this question <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 because I'm not qualified. Any most physicists who predict the future normally end up regretting. That's very difficult to predict the future. My responsibility and the responsibility of my senior collaborators is to make sure the instrument is correct because the detector is so sensitive, everything we measure is something new. We want to make sure it's done correctly. Speculation is dangerous. So as you can see, Dr. Ting was saying that uh, you never know what you're really going to find. Uh, you always start out looking for X and you end up finding Y, which is even more intriguing than X was. So, uh, what, what do you what do you think about that one, Mark? Because I know you were you were there at one of the the conferences where where Dr. Tang sort of similar said something similar to the same thing. He did, and I'm going to read. Uh, this isn't Dr. Tang's words, but I found a, a little statement that, that that kind of highlighted what this is all about, and it was about discovery, and it's the process of uncovering something new. It can be a surprise. It can be what you're looking for. It can be something that you're not expecting. And Dr. Ting, in the briefing that I was at on March 10th, um, he had a, uh, a view graph or a slide that uh, he actually kept coming back to several times. And at one point, one of the media that was there said, uh, Dr. Ting, would you go back to your favorite slide and, and, uh, and, and bring that one up? And he did. And then he took his picture standing off to the side with the... Uh, the projection on the screen behind him. 
but uh, basically the the slide discusses discoveries in physics and it has uh, one two three four five six seven eight of them listed and uh, the first one was in the 60s at CERN and the original purpose was to understand nuclear force the discovery with that instrument was neutral currents the next one was uh, actually Dr. Ting's, and it was at Brookhaven. It was another proton accelerator, original purpose, nuclear force. Uh, the discovery was two types of neutrinos, the breakdown of time reversal symmetry, and a new form of matter. The next one uh, was in the 70s at FNAL. They were looking to learn about neutrino physics, and instead they found the fifth and sixth types of quark. At uh, SLAC, another positron collider in the 70s they were going to get a better understanding of the properties of quantum electricity and instead they found the quark inside protons the fourth type of quark and the third kind of electrons so you can see where this goes each of these projects was looking for one thing and found something else and that's the question that dr ting i think is probably asked most frequently what do you hope to discover and he mentions the things that, that, that you mentioned earlier, dark matter, antimatter, strangelets. He says, what are we going to find? We don't know. We're going in with a precision instrument, but we're looking for things that we don't know about. So chances are we'll find something totally different than what we're expecting. And it, it will boggle the mind indeed once we start getting data and once we start uh analyzing what uh, AMS is going to be bringing back. So this is in, this is indeed one heck of an exciting uh, exciting time um, for uh, for particle physics. It's a, it's the first it's the only I believe uh, it is the only physical science experiment that's going to be on the International Space Station, but uh, <laughs> what an experiment indeed. Oh, let me throw one little bit of uh, particle physics trivia and and this indicates uh, how AMS has the chance of success as a precision instrument that's never been done before. The statement here that I found from Fermilab is that outer space is not empty. For example, on the average, one electron floats in every cubic centimeter of space between the planets and star in our solar system. Between the galaxy, one can find a diffused sea of photons and other particles. So it's out there. We don't know it, but AMS is going to see it. And we'll be going ahead and uh, talking more about uh, AMS in the coming in the coming uh, months and years years ahead. But uh, tonight was just sort of a little primer, as indeed what what AMS is is all about, what what uh, what its focus is, and uh, hope you folks enjoyed it. Mark, again, thank you for all your work on this, and thanks again for uh, being our, our sort of de facto uh, uh, KSC bureau chief. I know you worked your tail off to go ahead and get us all this information, so you know I really do appreciate it. I, you know, this it seems like you should at some point get tired of learning, but uh, I've been learning for it seems like my whole life, and and having something like this to focus on, and particularly people that explain it as as well as Dr. Ting does. And, of course, we're not trying to explain it. That will come in future shows. But uh, it, it's exciting, and, and I hope that uh, we give everybody a little taste of what's there. And do some digging. Look around on the Internet. Go to AMS2.org. We'll put some links in the show notes. 
you can do some digging and find some cool stuff on your own. Indeed you can. Thanks a whole lot, Mark. Kind of wraps up uh, Talking Space number 315. Uh, Thank you again all for listening.